Okay, so I was 11 years old and it was time for church services, right? And I did not want to be there. It was a nice day outside, but there I was, hot, scratchy, my little boy tied knotted in a grown man's Windsor. And we listened to the announcements. We sang the songs and the pastor got up. And the pastor started talking about, looky here, looky here. So Saul was in the persecuting business, see? He loved to persecute up some Christians and torture them and beat them and poke them. And one day, Saul was off to do some devilment and blam, a light blasted from the clouds. It knocked Saul right off his horse, right on his narrow behind. And out of the shining glory, he heard a voice. Saul, I am the Lord your God. Do not persecute my people. And for three days and three nights, Saul was blinded and could not see. He cried, Lord, Lord, but there was no answer. And on the third day, the third day, his vision was restored to him. And this Saul, he changed his name to Paul and went out and preached the gospel. And I heard this story and I was like, for real? Paul got knocked off his horse and he suddenly knew what to do just like that? I was confused. I needed more information. So I waited till after church and I went to the pastor and asked him, how do I get knocked off a horse? How do I know what to do? And he said, don't worry. The Lord will speak to you the same way he spoke to Saul. You too will know your calling. And since then, since that conversation, I've waited and I've searched snappers. But sometimes I have to wonder if the answers came when I was not yet ready to receive them. Because that would be the greatest tragedy of all. Today, on Snap Judgment, from PRX and NPR, we proudly present The Call. Stories about people who really did see the light and for whom, from that moment, everything changed. My name is Glenn Washington. Welcome to Snap Judgment. Now, we're going to get right into it today on the show with a story from a woman who thought she knew exactly where she was going. kids say that when they grow up, they want to be a doctor, like Mary Hewitt. I wrote about it when I was in kindergarten or first grade, but I misspelled the word doctor. But Mary Hewitt, she felt it deep down, and she actually grew up to be a doctor. She's got a family practice outside of Houston. Uh, take care of everything from colds to heart attacks, so... She always just wanted to help people, and at first, she thought medicine would be the best way to do that. I was a full-on believer that if you took a pill and you followed the doctor's directions, you got better. But her patients didn't just get better, not all the way. And Mary began to feel dissatisfied, restless. Her power to heal as a doctor was limited, and medicine seemed more like a business than an act of compassion. You can treat the diabetes, you can treat the hypertension, but there's a whole other layer, and that was very disheartening to me. I guess I I expected to feel like I helped people more, or like I made a difference more for them. She was treating symptoms, but not healing anyone. Eventually, she became so frustrated with medicine's limitations that a restlessness began to take over her body and her mind. She felt like she was losing it. I felt raw, dipped in alcohol. I felt like I was falling apart. She just wanted to leave everything, her work, her town, her life. She wanted out. And then one day, something curious happened with the patient. I was asked to take care of this man who was dying of lung cancer. I had gone in and spent a lot of time with him and a lot of time with his sons and his, um, his wife and kind of reached a, an agreement with them about how we were going to help him because he was in excruciating pain. And so I remember finally getting him comfortable, and I remember coming home thinking, something's not right. I think he died. Surely I wouldn't just know that. 
I turned the car around and I, I looped back to his neighborhood. And as I pulled up in front of the house, I got a phone call from his son to say, hey, Doc, I think Dad just died. And so my response was, open the front door, I'm here. He said, I beg your pardon? I said, open the front door, I'm here. And this happened to Mary over and over again. When one of her patients died, she would somehow just know. And all the science she had spent so long carefully learning couldn't explain what was happening. I felt so uncomfortable and knowing when they died or having dreams about things that happened to them that I couldn't, I just couldn't, I couldn't make it make sense for me. And I tried changing my beliefs. I went from one church to another church. She talked to close friends and co-workers and therapists, but nothing helped. And in her search for answers, she went online. I did a uh, Yahoo search, and I, uh, I used a search term, I think it was shamanism and healing or shamanism. I was just curious about what I would find, and so I'm flipping through these websites, and I run across this website for a guy in Colorado named Roger Laborde. So I sent him an email. I'm curious about what you do. I'm curious. So Roger Laborde, a shaman from the Red Elk family on the Fort Peck Indian Reservation, wrote back. He asked Mary what she wanted to know. I wrestled with what question do I ask this man. So I thought, well, what the hell? I asked him if I was a shaman. And Roger said, No. If, if a person is asking, then the answer is no. But Roger and Mary began an email correspondence, and he told her to be open to possibilities. I decided to go for a walk, and, and it was be open to the possibilities. It was like a chant over and over in my mind, be open to all the possibilities, open to all the possibilities. I'm walking around the neighborhood. It's very hot. It's an August day. As I turn the corner on the end of my street toward the east, I see these clouds, and I'm thinking, they look like they're boiling. And all of a sudden, I see this lightning. Everything goes white, just bright, bright. And I remember thinking, gosh, where am I? Am I still on the ground, or what's happening here? Mary didn't realize it yet, but she had been struck by lightning. She was disoriented and confused, almost childlike. So she just kept walking. So I continue walking probably another quarter of a mile, and then I see the same effect again, the strobe of lightning and the flash. She was struck by lightning a second time. But again, she had no idea what had happened. She just felt her body overheating, so she turned around and walked home. I go straight to the refrigerator, get two glasses of ice water. I go into the shower, I turn the water on, and the water on cold felt so hot to me it was unbearable. And I pour the ice water over my head. I realized that I had been struck by lightnings twice, really got it when I woke up with my eyes on fire. I couldn't deny it any longer. Mary went to the eye doctor, who confirmed that her eyes had been burned. A few hours later, burn marks appeared on her arms and her upper body. She wrote to Roger Laborde, who told her that getting struck by lightning is widely considered to be the call of the shaman. A person who's been struck by lightning is considered to be a special type of shaman. She didn't have to ask again. She knew. She took to her new calling carefully, under the close mentorship of Roger. She's still a medical doctor, but now she uses spiritual healing as part of her practice. The first experience that I had was meditating at the bedside of a lady who had terminal breast cancer. And um, she was terrified of dying. And she had this restlessness about her. She had just hung on and hung on and hung on in this coma and on dosages of drugs I'd never seen before. I did not know what to do to help her further. I went one evening about 6 o'clock, and I sat at the bedside with the lights off, and I started to, to meditate, just asked for help for her. And I started to feel this pain in my pelvis, and I was like, golly, what is that? And at some point, I, I realized that this wasn't mine, that it was hers. And I think that her Foley catheter was causing her terrible pain. She was extremely restless and writhing around the bed and pulling on everything. And so after we took the Foley catheter out, she stopped doing that. Finally, Mary was able to accept that her life would never be the same. 
The simplest answer is that um, I have compassion for people. Now, please understand, Snap Judgment does not recommend walking about in lightning storms. It probably won't make you a shaman like Dr. Hewitt, so do not try it. But to find out more about Dr. Hewitt, check out our website, snapjudgment.org. That story was produced by Anna Sussman and Renzo Gorio. Different people are called to do different things. You might be called to lift weights, become a priest, maybe throw darts in dark CD bars. Your calling is yours to navigate. I'm not here to judge, but people, people will judge. So it's great if you get called to do certain things, like be an artist or a surgeon, whatever. That's great. We applaud your societally sanctioned dedication. Snap Judgment regular contributor Joel Benizzi he tells us a story about a very dear friend who received zero attaboys for his calling. I have this friend, his name is Paul. Paul is a real serious guy and kind of quiet and very, very smart. He had gone to Yale and he studied cello and he was really, really very good at the top of his class. But much as he loved cello, that wasn't his dream. The dream he'd had since he was a kid was to be in the circus. Ever since he heard fly through the air with the greatest of ease, the daring young man on the flying trapeze, he thought, that's me. He'd fly through the air with the greatest of ease, a daring young man on the flying trapeze. And so after graduating from Yale, he applied to and was accepted to Ringling Brothers Circus College. Now, it turns out that to apply to be in the circus, as an American, you really have two options, either clown or showgirl. And he didn't have the legs for showgirl, so he decided he'd be a clown. So he went down to Clown College in Sarasota, Florida. And as soon as he got there, it was his world. (laughs) He excelled. Something happened to him when he put on that red nose, the face paint, the big shoes. He came to life. That was him. Falling down, pies in the face, running into walls, and most important, the funny walk. And he fell in love. A young woman who was also studying to be a clown, it was just meant to be. Now, of course, you can be a clown and you can be a clown, but not many clowns get chosen to be in the circus. And at the end of Clown College, they had the big show. And when the names were posted, Ladies and gentlemen! The girls was there, and so was his. And he was so excited, this was a dream come true. The day before they left, he did what all clowns do before a long trip, his laundry. And he went to the shopping center where there was the laundromat, and as he gathered up his clothes, he did what he always did, which is put him in a shopping cart to push back to the train car down the street where he lived. But as soon as he went off the parking lot, a squad car pulled up, and then another, and then another, and another. Four cops got out with guns and said, drop the shopping cart. Paul stood there frozen, and they said, drop it. He, he raised his hands above his head, and he He stared at them in the barrels of their guns. Nothing in Clown College had prepared him for this. Now, Paul had no idea, but it turns out the owner of the shopping center had been losing too many shopping carts and had decided to make an example of whoever was taking them and said, the next clown that takes a shopping cart, I want him busted. They frisked him, they handcuffed him, and they took him off to jail. And as he sat there in jail all night long, he had one thing on his mind, and that was get to the circus. The train was leaving in the morning and he had to be on that train. And so he called the girl that he loved. She gathered up money, posted bail from everyone she knew, got him out there, and he ran. Ran to the circus, got there just in time, and as he went in, they said, Paul, the lizard wants to see you. Well, Paul knew what that meant. They rehearsed in a huge arena, and at one side, top a flight of stairs is an office with a big plate glass window. 
And that's the office of the head of the circus, known to all as the lizard. Paul goes up the stairs, and there he's standing, smoking a big cigar. He looks long and hard at Paul and finally takes the cigar out of his mouth and says, We heard about what happened. Grand theft shopping cart. You are not serious enough to be a clown for Ringling Brothers. Pack up your hat. Pack up your balls. You're out of here. And then he did the most shameful thing you can do to a circus clown. He took out a black plastic trash bag. Paul took the bag, walked down those stairs, and as he did, everything in that arena suddenly stopped. They looked at him as he did the walk of shame. All the way to the far end of the arena, to his locker, he took out his red nose, his hat, polka dot pants, giant shoes, all in the garbage bag. He said goodbye to the girl he loved, and as it turns out, she would later fall in love with an acrobat. The flying trapeze, his movements were graceful, all girls he could please, and my love he has stolen, stolen, stolen away. He walked out the door, and he went back home, and went into a serious depression. The kind of depression that comes when your dreams are just torn to shreds. But where are the clowns? There ought to be clowns. Quick send in the clowns. And then one day he woke up and put it together. He said, cello, clowning, why didn't I think of it? medical school. He applied to and was accepted at Harvard and became a doctor. And it was some years later that he walked in to see his first patient, a child who was kind of frightened and a little sad because he was sick. And Paul took a good long look at him, twirled that stethoscope around, did that kind of funny walk and said, what seems to be the problem? He called himself Dr. Placebo. Hi, this is Dr. Placebo, aka Paul Cooper. I'm a silent clown. This is why I asked Joel to tell the story and not me. And so both being a clown and being a doctor turned out to be my calling. Thank you, Paul Cooper, for living your life. And thank you, Joel Benizzi, for telling this tale. It was produced by Stephanie Fu. We have just gotten out of the gate. In Snap Judgment, the call episode continues. We're going to Burma. We're going to get superpowers. We're hanging out with David Hasselhoff. And we're getting into the recycling business. And yeah... That is way more exciting than you think in just a moment when Snap Judgment continues. Snap Judgment from PRX and NPR, blah, 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 oink, oink, oink. This episode, we've named The Call. Stories from real people who feel for one reason or another they've got an actual calling, a mission. Now here's the thing. Lots of people talk nonsense. They say, I'm 
going to do this and that and other thing, and there's no way they're ever going to do it. No way. And you know these people. They live next door. You wave at them every single day. How you doing? They might be nice, but they're lacking one all-important ingredient, follow-through. I say all that to say this. Our next guest on the program, he does not lack follow-through. I was a big comic book fan, you know? Spider-Man, the Fantastic Four, the Avengers. A lot of these heroes were uh, people who were a bit more realistic. They had problems and drama written into their lives. And then, interestingly enough, uh, I had a brush with violent crime. I was a teenager, and some neighbors were brutally murdered on my block. I knew them. It seems the local police had kind of screwed up the case, messed up evidence, touched things that they shouldn't have. Twenty years later, they apprehended the real murderer. His crime was random. He just wanted to find out what it was like to kill someone, anyone. He could have walked one way, and it was his victims, or if he would have walked the other way, it would have been our house. It really felt unjust for something like that to go unsolved for 20 years. It it got me thinking that there was real evil in the world. I knew there had to be balance. There had to be good. How do you do that? I decided to become a real-life superhero. This is what I've got to do. And so I took martial arts classes and I got cool gadgets and some stun weaponry that is legal in my state. I wanted to use smoke bombs. I thought that would be, like, really cool. And I started making notes and drawings and and costume ideas. Uh, Went out on a shopping spree after selling comic books to build a bank account just for this. The very first thing that I couldn't resist purchasing was this huge black cowboy hat, great black boots, some half gloves, uh, made a mask, and I have a duster for a coat. In a world full of evil and hate, he is the guardian of goodness. He is Geist. And I'm Geist. My identity of Geist is a, a German word. It roughly translates into spirit or ghost. When you put on the costume, you have to be the best person you can possibly be. And you can't let that go. I mean, you can't, you can't fall down on that. I mean, you're supposed to be a hero. I specialize in humanitarian aid, disaster relief. You have to pull over to the side of the road if you see someone in trouble. I work with a team. It is led by my friend Razor Hawk. Uh, we also have Misery White, Blue, and Arctic Knight. We do crime patrols. I'm looking for gang graffiti. Uh, I carry a can of spray paint with me at all times, neutral gray. There was some uh, pretty nasty gang graffiti alongside a river. There was a swastika there. It bothered me. So I climbed down to where the graffiti was. I took a photo of the graffiti before, and then I painted it over. Then I realized I couldn't get back up. And I was like, well, the people who did this got back up. Why can't I? And I'm thinking, well, maybe they had, like, more than one person here. I had pretty much no one to call, so I did call 911. (laughs) 911, what is your emergency? And I said, I'm Geist. I'm that real-life superhero guy. They came out with, like, three fire trucks. And they... uh, got out the fireboat. And I'm like, you're not calling the fireboat. Yeah, just a stepladder would be fine. Sir, please just step inside the boat. Thank you. So they got me in the fireboat and took me to another side of the bridge where there was a shore. And I got up and uh, had a talk with the officer who wanted to have a talk with me and gave him my real ID and, you know, told him who I was, what I was doing there, and showed him the photos that I had taken. 
And he looked at them and he said, well, you're free to go, but don't do it again. I, I do realize how this looks and how it's perceived. A lot of times when we're walking down the street, singly or in a group uh, on patrol, some people laugh. But, you know, when you give something to someone who really needs it, they don't laugh. Last night, a couple of us were visiting with a very, very sick child who's going through the Mayo Clinic. His parents, they contacted me and said that their son, Ben, thought that I was his favorite real-life superhero. And I said, wow, that's really neat. And she said, could we meet you uh, when we're in Rochester next month? And I said, yeah, why are you going to be in Rochester? She said, "Uh, he's going through the clinic. We met him and his sister and the family. Razorhawk is also a costumer, and he made superhero outfits for all of the kids. And Ben became Power Boy, his sister became Pink Lantern, and the, the four siblings all together became the Fearsome Four. The mother asked, do you have any action figures? Coincidentally, I had just gotten one custom-made. Ben is going through the clinic. He's terminal. So, he's got my action figure. Please do understand, Geist asked us not to reveal his real identity. We'll have a link on our site to reallifesuperheroes.com where you can track him down for yourself. Big thanks to Snap's own Anna Sussman for the story, and that sound design was by Pat City Miller. Now, for lots of people, a calling is not something you just know from birth. Instead, it's something that kind of sneaks up on you. Like a herd of cows. Real slow like. Texas style. Everybody has a favorite childhood storybook. The one you want your mom to read you when she tucks you in at night. I grew up in Germany till I was six, so I brought this with me. The book is called uh, Zarephim and His Wonder Machine. You all tucked in? Ready for story time? Seraphin and the Wonder Machine by Philippe Fee. In the book, Seraphin is an oddball pack rat who loves to acquire, well, junk. Seraphin loved to stroll through the flea market. There, he accumulated the strangest items. A broken crystal vase, a handbook for growing begonias, a bust of Socrates. Seraphin reconstructs this ordinary junk into extraordinary things. And that stuck with Vince, even after he grew up. But my first real sculpture that I did in the backyard was when I was 16. It was a pyramid of junk. You know, it was like a Mayan pyramid where it's got stuff inside of stuff inside of stuff. And that was built out of the remnants of these two dumps. So you really identify with this tinkerer guy? I do, I do. Totally identify with that. In the book, Seraphin inherits a rundown estate and winds up renovating it into a complex palatial home made out of his flea market finds. His house was not quite like any other house. Countless secret spots and always new surprises. So this is this is very similar to my story. Because in 1989, when Vince finally had his own place in Austin, Texas, he started construction on a building made out of junk in his own backyard. That's the way it started, really, with hubcaps along the fence and then these individual freestanding towers. Started in 89, and by 93, I had the first domed room. He lashed together baby dolls, electrodes, signs. Do you ever weld stuff together? No welding. It's all just connected stuff with other stuff. Puzzled and wired together. Uh Uh-huh. It's MacGyvered. The building grew two stories tall, 30 feet high. There was a garden of televisions, a wall made entirely of bicycle parts, a throne, toys, shopping carts, bottles, bowling balls. 
They're not in mint condition, any of these things. They've had a previous existence. They have these stories behind them. There's a time clock, completely burned out. It's stopped at 9.01, and it's got a dent in the top of it. And I wonder, what happened? Did this guy come in at 9.01? Did start at the usual time. His boss yell at him, and he just go postal? Burn the place down? <laughs> what is the story behind that? I want to know, but I'll never know. And when you compare Vince's masterpiece to the picture of Seraphin's house... Ta-da! Oh, wow. This one looks just like something that would be in here. It does. Well, see what I'm saying? There's similarities here. It looks remarkably like this. Vince had lived out his childhood storybook fantasy. Once word got out about his structure, thousands of people came to see it. It's a magical space. Have you ever built a treehouse or a fort? Inside that space, your rules apply. You know, and the outside world doesn't apply anymore. When people see these different objects, they're immediately transported to another world of memory. You know, oh, grandma had this, or I had one of those. People started bringing junk for Vince to use. They asked if they could hold events there, so he built a stage, and he decided to call it the Cathedral of Junk. It's very much like a cathedral. And they're used as a, as a center of the community. They're used for special occasions to celebrate. It's the same way this cathedral is used. I've had probably two weddings a year here ever since. We used to have crazy parties till dawn here. It could have gone like this year after year, if not for the fact that one day, these men arrived with letters full of official stamps and signatures. Seraphin understood only that they were using evil words. Dispossession, residential development, tear down legally, move out immediately. Bureaucracy hates magic. Magic is unpredictable. It doesn't follow the rules. And so it was only a matter of time before officials came knocking on Vince's door as well. The city guy, the one thing that he made me clean up was the TVs. He said, well, you know, they're just a pile. Uh, I'm like, well, what kind of expert are you on piles exactly? The pyramids are just a pile of rocks. And actually, you and I are just glorified piles. But he didn't buy that. No, of course he didn't buy it. So Vince cleaned up the TVs. Over the years, more inspectors came, suggested small changes, and Vince made them. Better to comply if you can. That worked until the city shut me down. In March of 2010, very serious. Like, you need a building permit for your auxiliary structure. They only gave me seven days to comply. It's like, guys, you know what? This is probably going to take longer than seven days to deal with. So am I supposed to take this seriously? Well, yeah, I did have to take it seriously because their trump card, if they're not happy with it, they can turn off my power, bulldoze it, charge me for it, and take me to civil court. And they put a red placard up front that said, dangerous conditions exist. I call it my scarlet letter. In order for Vince to get the building permit, he would need to clear huge chunks of the cathedral off the property and have an engineer certify it as structurally sound. And I was like, well, this is not going to happen. I'm not going to be able to get a building permit. My life's work being torn down. It was horrible. It was, you know, I definitely did some crying. I had cancer when I was a kid, too. And actually, this is, this rates up there with it. It's pretty bad. It was bad. The officials knocked loudly. They demanded to move the inhabitants out immediately so that they could start tearing down the house. Come down immediately, they shouted from down below, or we will get you down. Seraphin won't surrender. The bulldozers approach his house and he flees up to the top of his turrets, and then he just sort of steps off them into the night sky. And that's it. That's the end. That's not very satisfactory to me. In real life, where the story diverges from his story, was that he didn't get the people of whatever city that he lived in to, to help him out. News of the cathedral's troubles got out to the press. Owner of the so-called Cathedral of Junk here in Austin. Really, all anybody heard was cathedral to be demolished. The people of Austin came out and supported me, and, and then they rallied. These volunteers, they all volunteered their time. Vince got more time to get the permit. And he realized that with the community behind him, the cathedral might have a chance of surviving. First, volunteers helped Vince clear 40 tons of junk off the property. Then the cathedral, which was bound together by wire, was tested to see how stable it was. We had to do a weight test up here and we put 400 gallons of water up here. That's uh, 3,200 pounds of water. And it's been through a 74 mile an hour wind. And it didn't budge. The cathedral was solid. His friends threw him a benefit at a local bar. I had to give a speech in front of everybody, and that's when I 
I called it the, the People's Cathedral of Junk. And I thanked them all. And that was really a, a good moment to know that so many people were behind me. It's not just my story, it's the story of Austin. And finally, after seven months... I did get the building permit. Everything's totally legal. It turns out, Vince got more than a fairy tale ending. The ending of the book was always unsatisfactory to me. This is much more satisfactory to me. This is a real life ending. And it's a happy ending, so, you know, what could be better than that? Okay, here's the secret about the piece you just heard. Most of the music for that story, including the song you're listening to right now, this song, was made out of sounds recorded from the cathedral's chimes, from the spokes and other parts. <laughs> it's deep like that. Check out snapjudgment.org for more information. Special thanks to Vince Hanneman. The story narration there was done by Katie Laird, and the piece was produced by Stephanie Fu. And I know she had a real good time down there in Texas. Get her done! When we return... Snap Judgment answers a call in the most unlikely of places. Stay tuned. back to Snap Judgment, the call episode. I'm Gun Washington, and it is all well and good when you get the call. That's great. But oftentimes, just because you know what you're supposed to be doing doesn't mean you know how to do it. Mark Ristich, take it away. This is Ralph Steele. My name is Ralph. I was born in Pawleys Island, South Carolina. Blacks and whites were separated, and that was my world. In the 1950s, the rift between blacks and whites in America was strong. And as a boy, it touched Ralph's world in a horrible way. My dad was murdered by the Ku Klux Klan. He was 27, and I was five at the time. And since then, my mom really never liked the island. To escape the memories, Ralph's mother moved the family around, to California and then to Kansas City. His senior year in high school in 1968, on April 4th, Ralph was mourning the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King. That day of his assassination, several hundred people just ended up at a park, and we were standing around in a quiet, sad way. And then the police, they shot gas containers into the crowd. And boy, yeah, it worked. They dispersed us. The crowd just went nuts. And all of a sudden, I heard all this class behind me. And this van drove up. It was a police van, and the doors just opened up. And he said, all right, all you get in this van. I just ran. I just ran because I didn't do anything wrong. And I hid under uh, El Dorado Cadillac. My heart was pounding so hard. I saw this policeman boots was just walking around looking for me. I just stayed there for a long time because I went to sleep under that car. It took Ralph four days to get home through the chaos of the riots. And when he did make it, 
he knew one thing. The Vietnam War was raging, but the main thing that was on my head was to get away from the racism, from being killed. I needed to get out of Kansas City, and so I volunteered to go in the military. I was in Vietnam. In Vietnam, Ralph volunteered as a door gunner on a helicopter, and day after day unleashed a mind-numbing barrage of bullets. One of the most sad missions that I ever had was the spraying of Agent Orange. It kills everything. Everything is dead, ghost-like. It was all gray. After the military, I began to get into meditation. It was helping me with my PTSD. That was my serious stress management, going to these retreats for 10 days at a time. And of course, of 100 people, I was the only person of color. While Ralph found some solace and healing at these spiritual retreats, he still came face to face with racism. One guy said, if people of color start coming here, I don't think I can continue to come here again. So it was to let you know, just because people meditate and practice, that doesn't mean racism or indifferences is not there. Even as Ralph took robes and became a monk, he felt an uneasiness with the culture. Then, one day, standing on the banks of an Alaskan river, he heard the call. As the light began to come up, it was at least 50 eagles. And in that moment, this revelation happened of, Ralph, you know, you've been doing this practice. Why don't you just go to where the nectar is and study with the masters? I got it. To get to the nectar, the juice, the soul of the practice, he knew he had to leave America. I first went to Burma, and they said, come on in here, brother, come on in here. We're going to have to teach you something. The practice was intense, 18 hours a day of meditation. You're way beyond pleasure and pain. Besides the practice, he found comfort in the fact that the skin color of the Burmese monks was even darker than his own. And so I was a monk among a thousand monks. I'm not a black person, I'm not Ralph, I'm not an I. We in a whole different zone. From there, he moved deeper and deeper on a path that eventually led to a monastery in the heart of the jungle. That was where I wrote death. Where you sleep is the size of a queen-size bed. It's made of bamboo, four feet off the ground, no walls. So you are really part of the woods. And at nighttime, you hear these things. Boom! Wild elephants and tigers, vipers, cobras. You go with your imagination and you hear it walking towards you. Boom, 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 boom. And your heart's going boom, 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 boom. You can hear these things breathe. You realize if you're on somebody's dinner plate, you're on their plate. And you feel them as they walk right by you. Boom, boom, boom. And so you totally surrender. And you just one breath between the breath at a time. That's it. One day, as he and the other monks convened to practice together, they were honored by the presence of a high monk. And I didn't know what was going on, and the wind was blowing, blowing so hard, we had to hold our robes down. And then I turned around, the wind just slowly stopped, and here he came. He stepped out, and he started talking, and you could see through his body. In that moment, Ralph knew this was where he was supposed to be, the source of the nectar the juice that he had been seeking. The juice was so thick. I saw that same juice that I saw in the church when I was a kid. I said, wow, it was thick, thick. Big thanks to Ralph Steele for sharing his story. That story was produced by Mark Ristich and Rita Daniels. And finally, finally, imagine you've been called. You're born to be one thing, but it's a fake out for something else entirely. Pat Massini Miller brings us the story of a young pianist that somehow makes a U-turn. 
My mom would always listen to classical music. I don't think she listened to anything else. We used to go to the symphony almost every Sunday. When I went to college, I was a classical piano major. The life of a professional pianist is just practice, practice, practice. Because with classical, you have to get every note right. So, I mean, it's, it's anywhere from like four to 10 hours a day just practicing. I was like, I don't know if I really want to do this. Like, I love piano and I'm going to keep playing it, but I want to do other things in music. I actually saw beatboxing live for the first time when there was this new kid at my school. His name was Lee Jay, and we had music class together. I walked in late, and then I saw him with a microphone. This boy was making drum beats and percussion sounds with his mouth. And so it sounded a little bit like... It was incredible. I was like, I have to try that. I have to learn how to do that. I had him just teach me the basics, which um, if you're thinking of a drum kit, there's the bass drum, which is just a... There's the snare, or a... And then there's the hi-hat. And then you just combine them all together. So... To be honest, I didn't, I didn't know where it would take me. I just wanted to play with it because it was fun. But once I realized I could develop it into my own style and just add it to my piano playing and singing, then I just kind of took it and ran with it. The West Coast Beatbox Championships in 2007 was set in Berkeley. It was just packed full of people. There's always question about, you know, being like a female beatboxer, whether you're good enough. I just remember, you know, sitting backstage and I think there were uh, 18 guys. There was this guy and he was saying, you know, I think that everyone could beat me here except her. Yeah, I don't think she could beat me. <laughs> ended up uh, winning the West Coast Championships. I heard about a beatbox competition over in Germany. Beatbox battle, yeah. It was the World Championships. So I, I flew out with my own money and ended up winning uh, the women's division. That just started a whole new wave of opportunities. I was on America's Got Talent. Judges were Sharon Osbourne. What's a scotch? You're brilliant. Re really brilliant. Pierce Morgan. Really original. And David Hasselhoff. You are like a one, one girl show. Ellen invited me to come on her show. Give it up for Butterscotch. Yeah. I was on Tyra Banks. I know what beatboxing is when you make the drum sounds with your mouth. Very guy dominated thing, but, but not, 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 not anymore. Everything was just so surreal. What's great about TV is that it was shown around the world. I still get messages from younger beatboxers and girls beatboxing in South Africa, uh, Botswana, Bulgaria, Malaysia. It's a pretty crazy feeling when you know that girls are looking up to you. People ask, you know, oh, like, you know, did you just wake up one day and you could beatbox? I'm like, uh, no. <laughs> yeah, that doesn't happen that way unless you're a superhero and you're struck by lightning, which, uh... That'd be cool. Okay. 
Butterscotch. Butterscotch. You're going to know her name. We'll have a link on our site, snapjudgment.org, to the world of Butterscotch. That story was produced by Jamie DeWolf, by Anna Sussman, with sound design by Pat and C.D. Miller. It's about that time, y'all. You have answered the call of Snap Judgment, the call episode. And you can't listen. You can't have heard all that without wanting to let somebody know. Facebook. Just look for Snap Judgment. Heed the call. Join Snap Nation and tell your story. Twitter? Yeah, we got Twitter. Our Snap Twitter handle is Snap Judgment. O-R-G. Full episodes, movies, music, all that ready for your embrace. Hours upon hours. SnapJudgment.org. Enjoy without guilt. Snap Judgment was produced by myself and the merry magic mystics of Mulberry Mountain. Shake your hair back and forth for the Uber producer, Mr. Mark Ristich. Anna, let them live Sussman. Stephanie, no tattoos, fool. Rita, sound of her own drummer Daniels. Pat and C.D. Miller has seen the light. Jamie DeWolf lives in darkness. Renzo Gorio is a leader of men, while Will Urbina is a leader of machines. Lindsay Riquillo leads by example. You know that dude that keeps wanting to show everybody the dance he learned at his cousin's wedding five years ago? <laughs> Do not tease, y'all. Don't tease him. It's just the Corporation for Public Broadcasting trying to keep it real. Turn the music up and stop all that chuckling. Many thanks to the CPB. PRX, the public radio exchange, putting the public in public media, whether the public likes it or not. And while this is not the news, this ain't the news, the fact could race Dr. Siegfried O'Malley to become the first person to the moon in a generation. And while looking over notes from previous missions, you could discover that the calculations, they're all just squiggly lines and happy faces. That there was no moon launch. It was all faked in a NASA soundstage. Yeah, and those imposing-looking men destroying your front door are here now to silence your truth. You could do all of that, yes. And still not be as far away from the news as this is. But this is NPR.